Hello, I'm Kristen Perisonotto. And I'm Hannah Ferguson, and we're co-founders of Cheek Media Co. This is the Weekly Cheek Podcast. To me, really shows what the consequences are if you can't like his daughters, if he can't relate to you. Before we start the podcast, I would like to acknowledge the lands that we are on today, the lands of the Yagra and Turrbal people, and acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging. On International Women's Day, I would like to specifically acknowledge all of the feminist work done by First Nations people for the last 60,000 plus years. Welcome back to the Weekly Chi. Welcome. In this week's episode for International Women's Day, we interviewed Danya Marnie. When Danya Marnie worked as a Liberal Party staffer under the New South Wales Baird government, she was subjected to inappropriate conduct by a senior parliamentary staffer. On one occasion, Danya was indecently assaulted in her own home. Danya reported what happened to her, exhausting every available complaints process under the State, Ministerial and Parliamentary Services Act. During these processes, Danya was told it was her fault, that it wasn't true, that she was making up the allegations. Those who did believe her told her that if she came forward, her political career would be over. In 2019, she reported what had happened to her to the Prime Minister's office. She received a phone call from Scott Morrison's secretary, Yaron Finkelstein, who failed to act informing Dani that she could write a letter to the Prime Minister like any other member of the public. Right now, the conversation is changing in Australia. The Me Too movement has rocked our nation's capital, but there's something missing from these conversations. Women of colour are being erased. Minority groups are rarely heard, let alone centred, during these milestones. Our feminism must go beyond this. I know you put up a tweet about this, about the... Um, uh, Scott Morrison's grand apology to women of Parliament House and that was something that you were um, excluded from or you know perhaps an afterthought I'll let you put your own words to it but would you be able to kind of explain um, what happened and how you felt about it afterwards? Yeah um, well I think <laughs> I think Scott Morrison's like quote-unquote apology you know comes in a certain like context that a lot of people still like aren't really aware of both as it relates to me um but also you know just this broader narrative of accountability when it comes to what's been going on in politics and what the issues have been to staffers so when i first told my story in 2019 um one of the facts that wasn't a part of the story and i haven't really spoken about much publicly was the fact that there was a complaint that I made to the, the Premier's office in 2018, so November 2018, before the state election. And that was about um, what my perpetrator had done. And for additional context, that wasn't the first complaint I made. Like after every incident of harassment and after the assault, I had made complaints to my supervisor who said things like, um, you should just be flattered. Why don't you enter a relationship with him? Just give him a kiss. Like, why don't you want to be with him? This includes like after the assault as well. This was still the narrative. Oh my God. Um, from him. Yeah. And so I've been making ongoing complaints. And one of the things that was already extraordinarily re-traumatizing and which meant that it took me some time to build myself up to making this complaint to the Premier's office was how every single attempt to make a complaint had been dealt with. Um, there was no mirroring, there was no validation. It did not even feel like we were having the same conversation because how can I be saying the words like, I am experiencing trauma, I'm experiencing ongoing harassment and violence if the response is 
but he's such a good guy. You should just be flattered. Why don't you want to be with him? You know, it just didn't, it didn't feel like we could possibly be having the same conversation. And so when I finally made that complaint, I initially get a phone call from um, the chief of staff and my um, perpetrator was working in the premier's office at the time that I made this complaint. And I, you know, sort of outlined what had happened. I made like a number of requests, including like conversations about things like law reform, changing the MOPS Act, which is the name of like the legislation that applies to political staffers. And the legislation is very, very similar at a state territory um, and federal level. They're basically analogs of each other because, you know, no politician wants a better version of that legislation in one jurisdiction because then people are going to start arguing and being like, well, why do I have rights and some other people don't? So they've just maintained like a really shit basic standard for everybody. How nice. Um, and, you know, so I made requests around that, like meetings with the Premier, conversations about law reform at like different jurisdictional levels. And I have one phone call and I'm told there'll definitely be an investigation. We'll definitely talk about all of these other steps. And I say that, you know, I want to ideally engage in advocacy with the kind of cooperation and support of the Premier's office on these issues. So for me, the sort of starting point for my like formal campaigning was like in 2018, because that's when these key events for me were occurring. It's just not a part of the public narrative right now. Um, and then after this first conversation, wherein the chief of staff says, I'll definitely get back to you. It'll just be a few days. I hear nothing for three months. And then after three months, I get one email that doesn't really say very much at all, but basically just confirms that like the premier's office kind of has unilateral jurisdiction over like what it chooses to investigate. Like the department doesn't really have a say um, they can provide very broad guidance, but, you know, the Premier's office does what they feel that they've got to do and they have every right to do that. So at that point, I sort of send an email saying, hey, it'd be great to sort of touch base and talk about, like, next steps. Can you please give me a call? Uh, and I never hear anything again. Uh, and we cut through to sort of August now of 2019 after I've told my story. And I put in a call to the Premier's office and say how unhappy I am that nothing ever happened and give them like a last chance to sort of do something basically. Uh, I then get an email from the chief of staff saying that, um, how dare I mischaracterize our communication uh, when I had withdrawn my complaint, but she had the audacity in saying this to hit reply to the email in which I say, give me a call so we can talk about next steps in the complaints process. And in my mind, I'm just like, if you're going to fucking gaslight me, can you at least gaslight me in a new email thread? Like, yeah. honestly. And, you know, I obviously, you know, then sort of say, like, this is just not okay. I now have a complaint in relation to you. You have not done anything. And now you're just gaslighting me on top of it all. Uh, and... At that point, I just feel like things obviously aren't going to 
work out in the Premier's office, regardless of what they've said. And I feel like the only hope that I have to get any outcome is to go to the most senior person in the New South Wales Liberal Party, who is Scott Morrison. And if I've failed at the highest level of a state leader's office, my only other option realistically, politically, is to go to the Prime Minister's office because one of the really big problems with the MOPS Act is that you don't have any rights to legal recourse. So it explicitly strips you of your workplace rights and industrial industrial action rights and workplace health and safety rights that every single other you know, category of employee can rightly and usually take for granted that they'll always have. So realistically, if I was going to have any chance of, of any action, the best place for me to go and really the only place for me to go was to the Prime Minister's office because I don't have and didn't have any of the usual legal options that other people have that they can think about. Um, and so, you know, I give a call to the Prime Minister's office and ask for somebody to call me back and I get called back by, I suppose, somebody who's now rather infamous and is sort of known as the chief sort of fixer and is one of his senior aides, Euron Finkelstein. And like in the conversation that I have with Euron, he sort of says choice things like, I don't understand why you didn't go to the police. I don't understand why other women don't go to the police. And I just sort of said, like, I know that you don't understand. That's the problem. Uh, you know, your level of government and your government continue to produce research on why it is extremely difficult for women to go to the police. It's very disappointing to me that you're not across your own research that you funded. Um, and sort of saying, I don't believe that you've received the number of complaints, the scale of complaints um, that you say that relate to state and federal and territory politics, because I'd also said I've received a number of complaints that relate to former and current federal members of parliament, including current cabinet ministers. So, and that was in August, 2019. And uh, he just said, I don't believe that because we have a zero tolerance policy. Um, like it, that even means what he's trying to say, mm. like having a zero tolerance policy means you don't tolerate it when you hear about it, not that it never happens. Uh, and, you know, just proceeds to also say in spite of this, oh, hey, um, but, you know, just send me all of the information and evidence that you say that you've received from these women anyway. But it's like, so I'll gaslight you. I'll tell you that I think that you're a liar. And I'll also ask you to break the confidentiality of these women and send me all of the evidence, even though I refuse to say that I'll do anything about it. I ask if he'd be willing to sort of meet with me or if there's any capacity to have a meeting with the Prime Minister about these issues, because the only way for anything to change, given that this like overarching infrastructure is about employment law and that's like a federal issue. Um, and, you know, the only way for there to be real action in the party is if the most senior leader in New South Wales and in in the party nationally is willing to take a stand and do something about it. And I get the response from you on, like, you're welcome to sort of send a letter to the prime minister, like any other member of the public. And I just say, so wait, are you going to help me or not? Are you going to do anything? And he promises that he's going to call me the next day to help set up a meeting. And I just never hear anything. Uh, and in February last year, when all the coverage around Brit's story was occurring, I spoke to 7.30 and they had, um, I gave them a copy of the recording of this conversation because I knew that Euron would always lie about 
what had happened in that conversation or had refused to hold himself accountable. And even though there is a recording that is held by 7.30 in ABC to prove what I'm saying is accurate, nonetheless, the statement from the Prime Minister's office was still that I had never brought up anything to do with federal politics, even though 7.30 plays a clip in which I say, I've received a number of complaints that relate to federal parliamentarians and cabinet ministers. And also, okay, just a flat lie that they had offered me all of this help in my own circumstance. And at no point was there ever an effort to correct this statement, um, because even if they didn't know that that recording was in the possession of 7.30, not that it was okay to gaslight me anyway, but at the point that it was aired and they would have realised, oh, fuck, they actually have the full recording. There's no way we can get out of this one. There was no effort to correct the record or to correct their statements. And I had heard from, um, you know, journalists at around this time that at the time that I had first gotten in contact with the Prime Minister's office and around the time that this 7.30 piece occurred, the people in the Prime Minister's office were meeting and they were talking about me and, um, you know, like backgrounding on me. And I, you know, just find it really, really disappointing that this has never been something that people have cared about in quite the same way that they've cared about other issues. Um, and I suppose there are comparative issues that I think people have rightly responded to that highlight why it's so important to talk about instances where the Prime Minister's office is gaslit and lied to and lied about survivors. Um, one of those is when there was a press conference about like how Brittany Higgins' allegations had been handled and Andrew Clonell basically asks him a question that he doesn't like about how all of this reflects on him and his leadership. And he chooses to sort of respond to that with that infamous, you know, glass houses comment and saying, oh, well, there's actually some sexual harassment going on in your office. Like, who are you to sort of lecture me? Best, like, fix your own stuff before you choose to criticise me. And it turns out he's just made the whole thing up. And obviously people were rightly upset about that. But then where's also the anger when a already marginalised, like, woman of colour is being openly, unapologetically gaslit and lied about in official formal statements to a mainstream media outlet. Like, where is the outrage? Where is the upset around that? And hearing that their like, intention as well with all of this erasure and gaslighting was to essentially reach the position of well, we don't know what to do with her. Like, she's still a member of the Liberal Party and we don't know how to handle that. We don't know how to handle her advocacy. So we're just going to pretend that she doesn't exist and hope that she's so dispirited that she goes away. Like, that their entire stance was premised on erasure and gaslighting and that nobody's really ever said or done much about that it was just horrendous to me. Um that these things could be reported on in the national media and yet somehow it seemed like nobody knew that it was happening, nobody cared that it was happening. 
was just so damaging. And so in that kind of context, when the apology happened, um, and to add to that context as well, in spite of that, I also sent two letters in February and April, like begging the Prime Minister's office to have a meeting to not only discuss my case, but all of the people who are coming forward to me and to like try to have a constructive conversation about what trauma-informed law reform looks like. I've never received any response. Um, and so, you know, when we get to this apology, they've known about these issues and they've known that I have a campaign working on these issues since the formal public launch of that campaign, like since its very earliest days in 2019, they were put on notice that I was aware of many cases that related to cabinet ministers and their government. They heard my specific requests for help and they didn't follow through. They ignored or pretended that I was lying when it came to the issues that I was drawing to their attention. They ignored letters summarising my advocacy and the issues that I was exploring for years at that stage through my campaign. And to then sort of see an extension of this apparent, like, policy of erasure in relation to me and the work and the campaigning that I'm doing in this apology by just not recognising the existence of a campaign specifically designed to deal with the issues that are being discussed just kind of felt like the final sort of just wound that I couldn't like tolerate or handle anymore. Like I had been putting up so much erasure and I just felt like it had reached a point where if I, if I didn't push myself in spite of the trauma around that to like act in a big way, I just felt like I was at risk of disappearing altogether somehow. Like this was, just the final assault on my identity and I just couldn't bear to be pushed away and pushed away and to have people pretend that I didn't exist um, because it's just, it's just such intolerable, substantial gaslighting. Um, and it was at that point that I, you know, reached out to Larissa Waters um, I also made phone calls to Maurice Payne's office saying, like, I'm too re-traumatised to speak with the Prime Minister's office after everything that happened, but I want to give you the opportunity to like, provide me with some support and work together on this, like no meaningful response has ever been provided. And, you know, it's just to then sort of not only have that apology occur, but to only find out about it on the morning of the apology through an ABC journalist who was seeking comment on the apology was really, 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 really hard to handle. And I think for me, reacting to that by speaking to a number of different politicians and pushing for this issue to enter into the conversation in federal parliament was very much a moment of like trauma and feeling that I just couldn't bear for the erasure to sort of go on anymore. And even that it had gone on for that point, I think was the result of how traumatised I was by the erasure and also an extent of like internalised, like 
racism in the sense that I just felt, how can I be just be being treated like this? How is nobody objecting to it? Why don't people care? Do I deserve this? Are people right? Do I deserve this to happen to me? But it's just sort of like, do, you know, do I deserve this happening to me if no one cares and no one's doing anything about it, even if I'm speaking about it, even if I've started a campaign on it, um, even if I've been leading the way on it, if, if still, even after all that, no one sees, no one cares, and political leaders are treating me poorly, do I deserve this somehow? And is my work as valuable as I think it is? And it just forced me to, you know, internalise all of these like fears and biases about myself and my own worth that took a long time to like undo. Um, and I think this sort of moment in time with, you know, Larissa's speech and my statement and the kind of responses to that can kind of only be understood with, with that context in mind when it comes to like seeing just how like damaging and personal this is not just for me, but in terms of just the antipathy and disregard of the prime minister's office for anyone who isn't white um, and cisgender and able-bodied and female, because it to me really shows what the consequences are if you aren't like his daughters, if he can't relate to you, um, if you don't look just like him and you don't act like his family members, like this is the treatment that you get. And that was, was really what spurred me forward as well. Like I felt, you know, even when I'm also in the position where I've had the privilege and fortune of being able to do media stories with a degree of cut through and I'm still holding my head above water like, what does this say about what the reality is for, you know, diverse, like, you know, marginalised gender voices more broadly? And the reality that it communicates is if you don't look like one of his daughters, you will be gaslit and you'll be punished and they'll just try to drive you mad. And I just really couldn't handle that or like sit with that anymore. Um, and I just felt and still do feel very much driven by just this urge to like remedy that erasure and like try desperately to call it out because there is a really, really grim reality at play here when we really examine how that office has treated me and people like me, because it's an indication of the exact level of disregard and hatred that they have for anyone who doesn't look like them. And we aren't talking about that and we really need to, because it is a reality that impacts every minority identifying Australian because he does not relate to anyone who is a member of a minority. Obviously, a lot of people um, won't report uh, assaults, harassment, um, rapes to, you know, their um, superiors or to the police for a lot of good reasons. Um, but you're kind of in the opposite. You did so much work in terms of reporting and putting in these complaints and calling all of these people um, and, you know, to, I guess, 
to, to what end really um, if it was just continually pushed back on. What kind of, what kept you going when you just kept taking it to the next level and the next level and the next level? Like how did you kind of keep that energy up? Well, one of the, the like, it was actually quite intentional to exhaust every single complaints process in the sense that I wanted to prove that whenever a politician responds with, but why didn't they use the complaints process? There's just not uptake about complaints process, but that's absolute bullshit because you can pursue those complaints processes to the very end and what will it get you? And I wanted to make the point that you can make every type of complaint and you can give people time to process that and you can give them the opportunity to act ethically and they will not do it. And so I wanted to make the like the case in terms of, you know, making complaints to my supervisors, like to the Premier's office, like to the Liberal Party, like, um, you know, to these advisors federally that you can try literally everything. The processes are designed to fail because the people who are in charge of executing those processes have zero interest in those processes actually working and supporting a just and procedurally fair outcome. And I was just so sick of those lines being carted out because like, let's be real here. Like, you know, as you point out, there's a really big reason that there just is an uptake of those complaints processes because we all know that they don't work. And so I wanted to sort of provide that final nail in the coffin by being like, you know what? I'll call you on your bluff. I will pursue every complaints process to the very end. And I will prove that you have no interest in any of them working. Because as well, if the Prime Minister's office wants to claim that it takes these issues seriously and that it actually cares about acting, like where the fuck were they when I told them that I had multiple complaints relating to members of their government? Like, did they show any interest in even figuring out who those parliamentarians were? No. And, like, what does that say about how much they truly care about policing these issues in their government? They didn't even want to know who the MPs were or who the cabinet ministers were. And that is a really telling thing to me, that the prime minister's office would rather employ a policy of being able to claim we didn't know about this by refusing to ask for clear details from people than to actually gather information and be proactive and act to solve a problem. They're driven by self-defence. Like, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to know because I don't want to then have to act on anything or feel complicit in anything. Not, I want to hear about it because I want to do the right thing. And I've just felt that it's just beyond revealing every single action that, I mean, not even only the prime minister's office, but also like the opposition leader in his office, like every action that they've taken has ultimately been an action to serve the interests of that political leader. Because even with the apology, like the only meeting that any, that has ever been reported on that any of us have ever heard about was like three business days, including the Thursday was three business days before the apologies from the Prime Minister and the opposition leader took place. And that was like the first and only meeting that's been reported on that relate to, well, what should the apologies look like? Who should they be given by? 
when should they be given? And I think what is clear is that given that the Jenkins report had been handed down months before, the fact that this wasn't better planned is really telling. The fact that this was the first meeting that the public has ever been told about is really telling. The fact that logistics were still being organised, like literally the day before, and there were still arguments between the opposition leader's office and the prime minister's office the day before is really telling. And I keep hearing this like line coming out of Albanese's office saying like, oh, you know, but we always wanted to apologise. Like in what, like, in what terms though? Like by always meant to apologise, you mean after the meeting, three business days before the apology, not even at the meeting, after the meeting, you get your staff to contact the prime minister's office to provide last minute notice of your intention to give a speech. You haven't written it. You didn't plan it. You react to what's happened in this meeting at the end of what is three business days before an apology. And you then try to frame that as I always wanted to give an apology. You didn't say this when Kate Jenkins handed down her report. You didn't say it before the meeting. You didn't say it at the meeting. Like, this was opportunism. He wanted to try to, like, blindside the Prime Minister's office by giving him last-minute notice, hoping that the Prime Minister's office would be too busy um, or, you know, just disorganised to pull anything together with an actual apology from the PM. And Albo was hoping, well, I'll just be the only one to give an apology as a federal leader. Obviously, Morrison's office was then not going to allow that political move to work. And Morrison said, okay, well, now I'm also going to do an apology. But this was never about survivors from either of them because the context for this conversation and where the conversation happened is also important. Like, they picked the last possible minute to talk about this apology at that time because they knew that the press club address was scheduled for the next week. The fact that they did their apologies the day before the press club address delivered by Grace and Brittany Higgins is so important because they wanted to neutralise the negative press that they knew was inevitable and that was coming in the wake of that address. They wanted to claim, oh, but we've apologised. We've done something. It's okay. And so in a way as well, it's like an attempt to gaslight and undercut the messages coming from that National Press Club address to pointedly schedule your apology for the day before a National Press Club address from these young women about the failures of the government. Like, this was always, like, very calculating and very strategic. If you really care about the issue, you're also not so fucking tone-deaf that you organise for all of this stuff to happen the day before a National Press Club address, because they all know how the media works. They know that they're diminishing attention and like singular focus on that address if they, you know, make a big to-do the day before. Um, they're making the conversation about them. They're not just allowing the conversation to be about those women and what they have to say. Um, they could have picked any other time. They could have consulted survivors. They could have asked what the apology should look like in order to be sufficiently healing. Neither the opposition leader's office nor the prime minister's office invited anybody. It was like Zali Stegall. Mm. So, you know, as well when Albo wants to say, like, oh, you know, I always plan to apologise. You mean you always plan to deliver, like, the world's shittest apology? Cool. And in the same fell swoop, both of them have now potentially jeopardised for its legal proceedings by making statements about the guilt 
that potentially reflect on the guilt of a perpetrator. Yeah. Um, in you know delivering that apology before there's been an actual trial. And so they've also just kind of been so thoughtless in how they went about this that they've potentially caused like further harm to a survivor. Both, and both of them did that because both of them delivered very specific apologies to her as an individual. And neither of them has apologised. The irony, right? Yeah. Neither of them has apologised for their shitty apology that like <laughs> jeopardised her trial from going ahead as scheduled. How has your experiences of the last few years shaped your career, your aspirations for your career that you may have held prior to all of this happening? And how has it shaped your views of the Liberal Party? Um, in terms of my career, I think that the past sort of like few years of advocacy have been really, 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 really key in in shaping what I feel like is urgent and how I think I can make the best possible kind of contribution to like advancing the agendas and rights of minority identifying and marginalised gendered people. Um, I think whilst when I started, my focus was far more on like these the right and ideal policies that we need to be talking about now, I think because of how I've been treated, the level of erasure, like just how crippling and bad that was, the fact that these past few years have, you know, somehow just transcended any other experience of racism I've had, and I've had some pretty bad ones in terms of just making me feel so completely conscious of my disempowerment as it relates to my minority status and race. Like, I think I've come to feel that the first priority before we even get to specific policy questions is creating like visibility and representation because sadly unless people relate to individuals who are experiencing these things and can see clear visible examples of diverse people going through these things they aren't going to care and we need to provide visibility to marginalised voices for this reason, because it has always been true that in relation to social justice and human interest issues, that people care about these things only when they feel like they can relate to like a sufficient number of diverse people being impacted by that issue. And it doesn't serve anyone's interests for it to be suggested that these issues only impact relatively privileged white women, because this also provides ammunition to those who are trying to make the case against reform by saying this isn't really a big deal. This doesn't happen to that many people. It's an aberration. It's the exception to the rule. You can't make that case when you are hit with a number of diverse examples. You cannot get away with saying that. And so it's also just throwing the cause under the bus. The more that we allow a reality in which the voices who dominate and monopolise the conversation are not voices that are representative of the diversity in this country. And I think we really need to think hard about that because we can't be successful with, you know, the issues that we care about within feminism if we're not making sure that 
our case is like watertight and bulletproof. And we only do that by making sure that we center like diverse experiences. Um, and in terms of, I suppose, how that's shaped what I'm doing now, I've sort of decided after, you know, this erasure that one of the big things that I want to do is finally kind of allow myself to really have a go at the campaign like full time. I haven't allowed myself to do that because I kept fearing due to this erasure that it might not take off, that I might not be able to make the most of it, but I want to give myself that chance to like dedicate myself like full time to this work and try to make sure that I can make it work and, you know, engage in this advocacy in a way that's like financially sustainable for me. Um, and so, you know, like that's what I've sort of decided I want to be a big focus like this year. Like I want to really take that, you know, investment and like invest in myself and try to really push this advocacy and see it through in a big way. And in terms of my political party membership, um, I like to say that I'm a member of the New South Wales Liberal Party and not the Federal Liberal Party because, um, you know, I'm moderate and very socially progressive. Like I identify with people like Matt King, who's always been a mentor of mine. He's like a very, very feminist, um, very pro-climate action. Um, and, you know, figures like Matt King have been really, really openly criticizing the federal liberal government and saying, you're not doing good enough work you need to change. And the individuals who cross the floor um, on the religious discrimination bill were moderates. So like to me, like those are the people in my faction, those are the people I stand with, like socially progressive people who are willing to put their money where their mouth is and like take a stand when it actually matters. Um, and there are a lot of people who I identify with in the party. And to that extent, I think that there is a real issue in how the media covers like both large political parties. Like instead of hearing about people doing constructive things within a political party who are fighting to make it better, we hear about the worst elements of both political parties doing really crazy radical things because in the media's eyes, this makes it for a great headline and for a great story. But is that really responsible? I personally don't think so because you aren't hearing about whether it's the Greens, whether it is the Labor Party or whether it is the Liberal Party, like the individuals who are trying to fight to improve the party. And there's a reason, for example, that, you know, within the federal Liberal Party, Malcolm Turnbull lost his leadership first, you know, I think it was one or two votes on an ETS, and then the second time again over climate action with like under like six votes, I think it was five or so. Like there are a lot of us federally, and there are a lot of us, and we are a majority on a state level. It isn't that we don't exist, and it isn't helpful that, you know, people in the party trying to do the right thing just because of the fact that it's like, oh, sensible people trying to do sensible things doesn't make for a great story that it isn't being spoken of, because I just think that there is this you know, really misleading picture of what political participation looks like in the context of being a member of like either of the two largest political parties. And a lot of people in Labor right and in the liberal left, or you know, we call them the moderates, but it's a liberal left, say, you know, had things gone slightly differently, I could have ended up in either faction. So there's enough in common between Labor right and the liberal left for people to feel like you know, depending on their circumstances, they could have ended up in one or the other because everyone in my faction like really admires people like Keating um, and sees huge merit in what he achieved. So there's 
more in common, I think, than people realise or think about. And I think one of the really big issues in politics broadly at a federal level is that we too rarely speak about how to take that shared common ground and how to use it to further important policy agendas. Because at a state level in New South Wales, like bills on consent education, on like affirmative consent, um, on, you know, abortion were kind of co-sponsored by the Nationals, the like Liberal Party, the Labor Party and the Greens or like, you know, the Nationalist Liberal Party and the Greens. So it's there's been like healthy cooperation from key figures across all of those political parties who share values to like get important legislation across the line. And I think like that's a really beautiful reality that reflects the diversity of opinion that can exist in political parties. And it's a real shame to me that we don't see any of that sort of cooperation at a federal level. Um, and I think the other part of why it's important to me to be a member of the party is like no one in my opinion anyway is an ongoing member of a political party because it's perfect and the reason that i'm a member of the party is because i don't want to just allow for you know white conservative dickhead religious men to maintain like a stranglehold over decision making and the only way for things to change even though it's not fair for this burden to exist on people of colour, like, unfortunately, the only way for things to change is for, like, diverse people to join up and sign up to political parties and, like, force the, you know, force different members to be pre-selected as the candidates and, like, force through, um, you know, like, different policy positions than currently exist. And so for me, it's not that it's easy or that I necessarily enjoy it all of the time. It's that I don't want to give up and... I want to make sure that I fight for the party to improve. And I think that that's just always been a really big part of political participation for me because, you know, my like family history and story is very much one of a response to colonization. Like nobody in my family in terms of ancestors was ever politically involved because it was ideal. It was, well, we need to fight for our rights. And the only way to fight for our rights is to, get involved in like messy, difficult, traumatic situations and like fight for better. And so to me, I think political participation in a major political party isn't a choice. It's like a necessity because these parties like have to change so that the rights of minorities are truly respected. And I want to do my part to make sure that this political party, you know, changes for the better and that people in the party who believe in things like climate action and feminism are the voices that we're listening to and not the kind of conservative Christian voices. A really good first step is sort of unpacking this idea that I think a lot of white survivors and white feminists have of like scarcity. There can only be one. Um, and also like, I deserve to be here. Like I deserve this. Um, and yet not questioning the fact that there is no diversity in representation. Like, I think that a lot of well-meaning people have, like, definitions of racism and sexism and, like, what they look like um, that aren't particularly helpful in the sense that I think they feel that racism and sexism are these, like, intentional acts where you're intending to hurt 
um, someone from a marginalised race or a marginalised gender. But like that isn't the case. You can think that you're doing the right thing and cause harm. So the point isn't intention. The point is like, what is the actual outcome of my actions? Like, are my actions resulting in an outcome that is causing a greater level of diversity and representation to exist? Or are my actions resulting in less diversity and representation or no change whatsoever? It needs to be outcome focused. So I think the first step is for people to say, the point isn't my intention. I am living in a society that is impacted by like genocidal colonialism and racism. It is inevitable that racism and sexism will interfere with and impact my actions. So I need to be constantly scrutinizing my actions to think about whether they are benefiting minorities or harming minorities. And that needs to be like a constant exercise that people engage in. I think healthy ways to then take that exercise and turn it into real positive results include like small day-to-day things, like making sure that if and when someone from a minority background comes to you and says that they're upset with something that you've done, do not ever be defensive. Like it isn't about being defensive. The point isn't that you even need to feel guilty. Like because if you accept that it's inevitable that your actions will be impacted, like you'll start to realize how silly it is to think that, and how racist in and of itself, or sexist in and of itself, it is to think that a marginalized person is just trying to make you feel bad and that you need to defend yourself. The point is that they just not to speak for people, but like I think one of the big points whenever somebody comes forward and speaks about these things is I just want for my experience to be validated. I want for my trauma to be validated. I want for the pain and bias that is causing my experience to go away. And so I think people need to reevaluate and change how they provide a response to those who kind of come forward and say, like, what you did hurt me, and make sure that they react to those critiques in a way that is healing and validating for the person who's coming forward to them and have the humility to, to not to take a step back and say, okay, well, what is my blind spot here? How can I understand the way that I've hurt this person? Like, how can I take responsibility for that? How can I find a healthy and constructive way forward? Um, that needs to be the thought process. I think on a broader scale, that there needs to be like a genuine ongoing commitment to making sure that you know you center and uplift sort of diverse voices if there are sort of like opportunities to speak and in a debate or if there are media opportunities or like if there are like any other like options that arise for sort of visibility but the reaction and responsibility from those with privileges to say i need to make sure that I am making space for diverse experiences to be given sufficient representation. If you didn't find us completely insufferable, come back next Wednesday for a new episode. You can also find us on Instagram at Cheek Media Co or online at cheekmedia.com.au. Yes, that's the one. That's the one.